Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. We are coming to you during the COVID-19 pandemic, each of us recording at home. This week, John shares his virtual Chattanooga Film Festival experience. Mike talks about the short-form video platform Quibi. A low-budget indie rules the COVID theatrical box office. And we catch up with filmmaker... Jason McCann, and we share our thoughts on the feature film Climax, available on Amazon Prime. I'm Erica Berlin, Executive Director of the Film Society of Northwestern PA. I'm John Lyons, filmmaker, teaching artist, and director of programming. I'm Stuart Nash, Cinematographer Guild member and director of the Greater Erie Film Office. I'm Mike Berlin, Erica Berlin's husband. I was reading, I shared this with Mike, I was sad that uh, Shane Carruth, who's a filmmaker who's only made two feature films, I ranked them very highly in my favorites list, has basically said he's done with the film industry. He's, he's fed up with the system, the Hollywood system, and the struggle to make movies um, on an independent level. And it led me to the Chattanooga Film Festival because he um, came across this independent film um, called The Wanting Mayor. And uh, he allowed them to put his name on it as executive producer. And he made mention in the article that it was going to be premiering at the Chattanooga Film Festival. I knew nothing of the Chattanooga Film Festival before this week, but I thought, okay, so if this filmmaker that's made two films that I really love puts his name on this new indie, I'm going to check it out. So I went to the Chattanooga Film Festival website, learned through the introduction video from the programmer. Uh, the executive director actually of the festival, that they're a young festival. They'd only been going on for five years. And once COVID hit, um, you know, they had put all their resources and budget and stuff into having fifth year of their festival. And they thought they were going to have to be no more, basically, because they had sunk all of their money into this and they were going to have to cancel and refund tons of people's tickets. You can imagine the, the nightmare of festivals, you know, that especially don't have um, the history uh, with sponsors and stuff like that. But Microsoft and some other big companies um, like Shudder, I'm going to I'm going to forget all of them, but some big companies in the genre space and in the technology space got a hold of them and said, hey, we will help you put on a virtual festival. So they've been putting on a four-day virtual festival this weekend. Um, I come to find out that Chattanooga's least in Movie Maker magazine, who does these top lists of film festivals, it's one of the top genre festivals in the world. Um, wow. And I bought a, so they had daily passes for $10, and then they had $30 all-access passes. And basically, you go to their website, you create an account, you log in, you see the introduction video from the executive director, and then you have access to, um, it was 49 short films, 27 features, and all kinds of live events that were hosted through Microsoft Teams. They use Teams um, for their panels, but they had somebody in a studio uh, that was kind of serving as the host for these panels. 
Um, and they have some pictures on their Instagram and Twitter. So you can kind of see, you know, their bare bones, COVID social distance friendly situation. Um, and then they had another screen. Uh, so they were doing like a split screen of the host. And then in the other screen, I would assume was probably Zoom or Skype or something like that with all their panelists. But I checked out uh, The Wanting Mayor and it was quite unique and very ambitious. And I quite liked it. Um, but then I also checked out, uh, like Adrian Barbeau was in a short film there. So I checked out the short film called, uh, oh, what's it called? Little Willie. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was actually quite amusing. It's, uh, it takes place at the, at the horror convention scene. And, you know, you have these celebrities from horror films that are there signing autographs and taking pictures and, uh, little Willie comes from this one child actor that's now grown up, and he he would, he had this doll that looked like him, Little Willie, and he would go in the movies, I guess, and kill a bunch of people, and then he'd like blame it on the doll or whatever. It was kind of like the. the like. So, anyways, um, I checked out Little Willie. I, I checked out The Wanting Mare, and then I checked out three of their panels, which were quite good. Um, there was Women in Horror. And then a frank discussion by women about addressing and preventing sexual harassment, which was also very good. And then I also watched their virtual pitch session. They had um, seven people that would come in and pitch live their projects. And they had five minutes to pitch them and people were weighing in. And it was just a really, uh, you know, kind of a cool experience. I I was impressed by what they pulled off. They were able to duplicate some of the things that you get at a film festival, you know, discovery, and then kind of looking on Twitter to see the films that were getting buzz like you would, you know, at Sundance riding on the shuttle or waiting on in lines and stuff like that. You kind of see the movies that people were, were buzzing about in real time. The panels, I thought, worked really well. Um, the things that you miss, of course, were like the energy of the shared experience. You know, you're just watching a, a movie on your on your screen as opposed to leaning over to the person next to you after a short film program and kind of weighing in on each of the films and giving your yay or nay right there. But kudos to them and just thought I'd share with you guys because I didn't expect I would go to the Chattanooga Film Festival or participate in one. And John, was that something before this that film festivals would do? Would they would they make all all of the content available online like that? Definitely not. Yeah, for sure not. And we we and like the industry as a whole really looked down on virtual film festivals before COVID because, you know, you can put your video up on YouTube if you just want right. to have it online. So, yeah, it was um it's something that they're just having to do to adapt to the situation. And um, a lot of the big festivals uh, are doing some form of virtual film festival this year, too. So kudos to them and the people that helped them pull it off. I would say it was very successful. That's do you think if great. film festivals reopen or come back to what they were you know, normally, do you think they'll continue then that online trend? I think that maybe we'll see a combination of more online uh, aspects incorporated. What that will be, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe some panels. I think Probably the panels were combination good. of both. I mean, didn't they just announce that the Venice Film Festival is still going ahead and schedule in September? Uh, I'm not sure what form they, they right. announced, but 
Well, yeah, you do um, lose the experience of being with the people in the crowd. So, but from a profiting standpoint, it might be a smart idea, particularly as these festivals have gotten more competitive with each other and stuff like that, to open it up to a greater public. Yeah, uh, and at the same time, you'll still have the for those who buy a ticket and go to the destination, whether it's Telluride or Toronto, you're still going to have the in-person experience, which is hard to beat. Yeah, good good point with that too, Mike. Like the you know, obviously there's the Can and Toronto and Sundance and all those festivals, but these festivals that are on like the second and third tier and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. again, I never would have went to the Chattanooga Film Festival, but now I've participated in one and I'm sure I'm far from the only one that has. So, you know, a smaller festival, you could maybe see more success about opening it up like this. I don't know much about Chattanooga, but I'm curious as to the size of the city, and um, if you have a genre film festival, is it no matter where you are, you're going to get a big audience because of the genre and the horror genre is, I mean, potentially one of the most um, fervent uh, <laughs> fan based genres, if you will. For sure. Um, and, uh, you know, Erie used to host a genre film festival called the Erie Horror Film Fest. And uh, it's interesting to think about now that we're switching into a virtual environment, you don't necessarily have the same kind of expenses like you were saying, but I w is there a, um, like, do you have to like use the app like Microsoft Teams in order to participate as an audience member? Did you have to like get that app? Teams, um, it wouldn't play natively through Safari, but I could go to Chrome and I could use Teams or you could install the app, but all the films were based through an interface on their website. Okay, so you didn't have to like have a Teams account or an Office Correct. account to. Okay, okay. Well, that's good. That's good. yeah. It was it was very accessible. It, I found it quite easy. If Microsoft is willing to do that for the Chattanooga Film Festival, you know, for smaller second and third tier festivals, as you said, John, I think there's a great potential there. We shall see. But yeah, you're right. The horror genre, um, you know, they have rabid a rabid fan base and. Um, yeah, would this work with a, you know, like a, a drama festival or something else? I don't, I don't know. But this, these people turned out, people, horror people will turn out for good horror films. Well, I think that's a great, uh, that's a great segue into, in the United States this weekend, only 6% of our movie theaters, of our 5,400 movie theaters were actually open. And about half of those were drive-ins. So for the, the open theaters and those drive-ins, the top grossing film was a ultra low budget horror film called The Wretched. The Wretched is about a defiant teenage boy who's struggling with his parents' imminent divorce, and he faces off with a thousand-year-old witch who's living beneath the skin of and posing as the woman next door. Sounds great, right? Yeah. Well, Erie County, the Greater Erie Film Office, is poised to support. That's really, really cool. And that's evidenced with, if you're a you know, listener of, of Film Grain, um, every single person on this podcast, except for me, worked on John's movie, Unearth, which is, well, it's not in release yet. It's not it's not out. But John, your budget was about 300000 correct? We'll say it's in this range. Well, it's in the ultra low budget range. But this is really exciting because this film was made in Michigan, um, which is very similar to Pennsylvania, especially in Erie County, you know, part of like the Great Lakes area. 
what's interesting about this is Michigan no longer has a film tax credit. They lost that in 2015. They had the best in the film industry for about 10 years. And then when they changed governors, uh, they lost it and they still don't have it. They're hoping to get it back. So I found it really interesting that this director shot his movie there uh, when you have states very close by that have a, um, a really solid film credit. So this past weekend, the ultra low budget horror film, which I don't think any of us in on this podcast would think would make any kind of dent really at all because it's super independent. It's super low budget. You wouldn't hear about this even if all of the film, if all of the um, theaters were open. And John, do you think, I mean, why do you think that is? Is it because all of the kind of big budget films that might be released are actually being held back and not being released? And so it's kind of paving the way for these lower budget films? Yeah, I mean, right now, IFC, the distributors, taking advantage of having any screens um, that aren't being utilized, right? Um, you know, if we've talked about this before, if you look at the budgets of the films that are coming out of uh, Hollywood studio system, you know, this this film last weekend made $362,000 at the box office. If, you know, Black Widow came out uh, this weekend and made 360 some thousand dollars, that's like... You know, the disappointment. It's like, you know... Yeah, I mean the movie that movie probably cost 200 million dollars. So you need to utilize these 5400 screens um in the United States and get your um product on as many screens as possible to make a dent in that budget. So, you know, the wretched, I would assume and actually uh, Erica it's been the top movie for the entire month of May and I would assume is even though we don't have the numbers yet for this long Memorial Day weekend, I don't think there's any new competition for it yet. So, on, well, on a budget of 2-300,000, dollars they're they're doing good business right now with no yeah. competition. And they probably didn't have the COVID problems in production and perhaps post, I don't think COVID is really affecting post so much like it is pre and post or pre and production. Uh, so, you know, they got lucky, I'd say. You can and get I'd a lot. say that there's another movie. Or which, which side are you sitting on, John? <laughs> need to release, man. We want to see on earth. Uh, yeah. Same thing. Same yeah. story could happen. Yep. Sure. I having with a little bit of um, uh, personal experience, you can get around like right now post is super easy, uh, particularly with Premiere and the way that you can bridge uh, from After Effects and Photoshop and illustration, Illustrator and stuff like that. It's and and being able to communicate with people. It's actually right. it's really nice. It's a really nice time for post production in some respects because you don't feel like you have producers breathing down your neck. <laughs> and if you do, they're just a click, a shut off away. That's yeah. It's like, oh, my Wi-Fi is slow. So if you're oh, yeah. curious, um, the wretched is actually available for rent on Amazon Prime. Has oh, anyone is watched it, it yet? Cool. I have anyone? not. Maybe. No. Yeah. Just checking. Have not. I'm Directed curious. by Brett Pierce and Drew T. Pierce. Um, made in 2019. Doesn't have the best reviews, but it's a horror uh, movie. It's a, a horror, movie. horror movie. What, what horror movie? 
But Erica, I think um, they are from Michigan, if I'm not mistaken, the filmmakers. So, um, you know, that probably was a big part of why they chose yeah. to shoot there. But um, yeah. maybe with their next film, um, you know, I think this was their first feature. I could be wrong, but yeah, I'm sure some people will be looking to uh, try and recruit them mm -hmm. to their states. Two things. Who's going to call them after this podcast? He better. It's on the speed dial. <laughs> two, th two things to add, real quick. Uh, historically, his uh, horror movies financially do the best job of uh, making their money back. That's right. a good thing to uh, sort of bring up. And second, I think that horror has, in the past ten years, and so has found itself in this very interesting niche because of so many big um, studios have gone the sequel or comic movie. Uh, comic book movie route that or is actually kind of turned into where original concepts permeate and uh i i think that it's unique to that genre at this point and while yes you will still have the influx of people going to see batman versus superman or avengers endgame and stuff like that people still want to see an original story and you still get that from horror it's all a good point mike for sure so speaking of original content, Mike. Well, speaking of original content, this leads us right into us. Uh, so the 999 streaming service has dropped. Now, what's unique about this one? It's called Quibi, and it is tailor-made for your uh, for your phone. So you can watch it in, you know, profile, or you can watch it in, like, um, you know, landscape. And uh, it's I, I did I tried it out in two different ways to sort of just see what the feel was like. And um, I'm going to say it's, it's one of the things that Quibi specializes in is that pretty much no, they have shows, documentaries, daily news, weather reports, and nothing is more than 10 minutes. Everything is mm -hmm. 10 minutes or less. And I, I tried a few different shows of, of the I tried the one action drama show with Christopher Waltz and Liam Hemsworth, the lesser of the Hemsworth brothers for sure, uh, called The Mo Most Dangerous Game, which I actually think is a remake, but don't quote me on that one. And then I checked out this comedy uh, with Will Forte, who I love, uh, called Flipped. Uh, and that was from guys uh, from uh, the guys, a young female director named Brian Case and the, uh, the team from Funny or Die. And then I also checked out some of the other features, some of the documentary features. There's a neat little music documentary uh, feature uh, called And Music, uh, which features uh, like focuses on the lighting directors, the dance teams, it, like who want to like go around with major artists. The lighting director is Martin Garrix, who is this massive, massive, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, EDM. Uh, DJ and he he's known renowned at for this point uh, for having these incredible laser light uh, shows and they go into that and it's a real it's a real short form and then there's also you can get your daily news NBC news updates twice a day BBC updates pretty regularly not as quite as uh, set as NBC so here's the thing that I've noticed with Quibi at the end of the day, you can make it long, you can make it short, but Quibi figured out, or Quibi is investing in one thing, quality. The quality matters, and people will come to you for the quality. And more than anything else, watching all these shows and watching how they're done, it's really fucking good. <laughs> it's like, it's really enjoyable to watch. Uh, so I just like, and I think what they've figured out is that they do have... Um, 
premier talent, uh, particularly with the narrative stuff uh, associated with the shows. But there's a ton, and I think you're going to start seeing a just uh, just a blossoming of young talent that's probably going to come from this. And I think I equate it some level of like periodicals like back in the day how you used to read a story whether it was in like a you know hardcore editorial in newsweek or times or uh rolling stone or playboy or uh because we read it for the articles of course <laughs> of course of course uh and and also it's just, just it is the quintessential it's a it's short stories and in this day and age as we have, you can make the, you can sort of pull the curmudgeon card of like, well, people's attention span, but it's like, what does it matter if these are done really well? And they are. And, hmm. and it's really interesting because I went in with a pretty skeptical, I was like, oh God, here's the next gimmick. But if they keep that quality up, then I'm not going to poo-poo it. Quality well, is king, yeah. Quality is king. Quality and is also, king. I think it's popular because people have that amount of, attention span anymore seven minutes 10 minutes tops even watching something that's like 20 minutes long right now you know if you're watching like i don't know 20 23 minutes it's like a 30 minute sitcom with commercial breaks time you know built into it i think that That, it capitalizes on people's inability to focus but I, I want to sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm deciding to focus on the positive on some level. On some level, it's just like no, that's not a negative. It, well, You're saying what are they capitalizing on? That's absolutely what they're capitalizing on. It's a good thing. It's not good right. for the okay. American in that respect. You know, yeah. mindset, that is what they're but... capitalizing on. You're right. That is fair. That is fair. But they're doing it really well. I mean, and to me, having worked. And having work, uh, you know, for a company to be unnamed that does not focus on quality, it is something that I appreciate a lot. Mike, is it true? I'm just gonna go right. I'm just gonna skip right over that. Is it true that they that the either the GUI or um, I don't know something in the intelligence, depending on the orientation yes. Yes. of your phone, it's it'll center. It'll like, center it. It, 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 I, so from an engineering standpoint, not to get too much, uh, as we like to say, inside baseball, that that's really impressive because and I know that, scan? well, but it's made from that point of view, right? Yeah, like you, should, you plan it in both formats. Right. Uh. So if you're watching it, they're centering it and it's following it and it's cut and not like it's cropping off at the screen. Like you've seen other, uh, other platforms do like they will center it now. Here's the funny thing. I don't choose to watch, like if I'm watching something on my phone, I don't watch it that way. But I do know that particularly with teenagers and younger generation, that is actually how they prefer to watch things. Yeah, which is crazy because then you've got like postage stamp size widescreen movie. What's what's the point of, yeah, the sound, the the 4K? Well, yeah, that's why I was really curious about this, Mike. Can you like, what's, how much does Quibi cost? Quibi costs uh, four ninety nine a month with ads, and then it costs seven. I want to say seven thirty nine uh, ad free. And, and I think a, we you get a fourteen day free trial. I would say now I know they're getting. It's not launching the way that they thought it was. Going yeah, to. that's what I was just going to ask. Not, they got, they're not they got, happy with the numbers, right? Yeah, they've gone nailed by the COVID because it's like who needs short? Nobody's looking for short form, short form content. But I do think if they can hold, they're trying up, to kill like half a day. Yeah, right. Exactly. But if they can hold on as things 
return some sort of, you know, back to normal and stuff like that, they might do really well. It, again, because they've, more than anything else, they've invested in quality. That is the thing that sort of jumped out at me. It, it, everything that I watch, even the news broadcasts, the news broadcasts, they've figured out how to do it better right now than how you, than like the network, ABC, NBC, CBS News. That's interesting. I, I was really impressed with that. And um, Are they doing anything live? No, I, have, I didn't see anything streaming. Yet, and I don't think that they're. Uh, and the news is, like I said, the news is updating on the regular, pretty, and the and the weather. They have the weather channel on there as well, and that is updating. You know, they're not doing local weather reports, but that's you're, you're getting like an update every three times. I was when I heard about Quibi, I thought, oh, that's for children. <laughs> I, it didn't I sound like all, anything that was for me. Like I it sounded it was, cute and fun, like. Oh, Erica, I thought the same thing. I thought the same thing. It, it's I, I again. It's the quality. That's what they've done well. So, what about this? Is it Eco Echo? What are they calling this one? It's like the New York version of Quibi. Have you heard the about York, this? I have not heard about this. Okay, they're in a lawsuit yeah. with Quibi for uh, misappropriating trade secrets. <clears throat> huh. So, anyways, just oh. I thought maybe you might know. Maybe something else we could dig deeper on. But Eko. Oh, Echo. I, I, I've seen I've seen ads for this, I, but I hadn't I hadn't watched it. Okay. Anyways, so what is it? Is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down for uh, Quibi? Thumbs, thumbs up. up. Okay. Thumbs up. Surprising. Thumbs up. No. Today we have Jason McCann with us. Uh, Jason works in the film industry in the West Coast and uh, down in Pittsburgh. Jason, welcome. Thanks for coming and being here with us today. You've Excited. been sitting patiently. <laughs> <laughs> Tell our audience a little bit about uh, your background, where you're from, and just uh, maybe a short version of how you got into film and like, how did you get to become a key grip? And maybe what is a key grip? <laughs> well, I was born March 2nd, 1986. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, a cold, cold winter. <laughs> now, I, uh, so I, I work in Los Angeles. I'm in uh, Local 80, which would be the union for the grip department. But I did start, I did start in Pittsburgh as a grip before I went out to Los Angeles. Um, I was just always into video uh, back in high school. John, I met you back, I think I was still in high school when, when I first met you. 2008, um, 2006, 2006. Is that when we met? I, I can't yeah. remember. No, that would have been out of high school, but super into video and editing and all that stuff in high school. And then, uh, yeah, when I got out, I went to a trade school for a year and then uh, came back home, which is Edinburgh. Um, and then I uh, started working in Pittsburgh for a couple of years and then, you know, transitioned to uh, Los Angeles probably two years into, into working. So the trade school, did that factor into uh, filmmaking or was that something else? Um, no, it was, it was, it was, uh, it's a school in uh, Florida called Full Sail. Oh, okay. um, I was, I, I was the last class through in 2006 where you could just do the associates, which was, was like a 13 month program. I think, right, yeah, okay. yeah, it wasn't, even, it wasn't even a full two years. Um, I mean, I haven't looked in that school in forever, but I think now you have to go for a bachelor. What was your experience yeah, I, like going to a, a trade school for film? And what, I'm curious if you would recommend it for people. I, I would recommend it. I, I know other people that went to that school that probably wouldn't, but you know, I feel like any schooling or any learning is what you make of it. Um, for me, it it was a really good uh, buffet of sorts because you get to try the sound department, you get to do some post-production, uh, you get to direct, you get to do cinematography. So you kind of got to do a little bit of everything. And then 
everyone kind of found their niche, like their little niche area that they, oh, like, you know, I thought I wanted to go into directing or editing. And when I got there, I was, I realized I liked lighting and stuff more. I, I recommend it. The other thing that was nice about it was I didn't go to a four-year college and I was, I went to school for 13 months and then got out and started working. The best experience is just being on set, you know? Did you yeah, get leads was, from Full Sail? Did you get leads for work from Full Sail going right in out into the uh, industry? Or did you have to work on it yourself? Because I always not, think not that's for, a good choice uh, if you're going to get into a trade school or a school, as long as they have I, recommendations. They had, they had a job placement uh, department that was available. It was a resource that was available after you graduated. I would say what was more valuable is just the people I met and that I graduated with that also went into the industry. I mean, 14 years later, I, I still get work the same way, word of mouth. You know, right. the people that you know and those connections. More so than the school's job placement program, I would say that, the, you know, those people that I went to school with, that, that was more rewarding in the long run. So 14, 14 years, how many or productions have you think you've worked on so far now? Um, I mean, you, pull, you pull in a minimum of at least 400 work hours a year, correct? I, oh, uh, to qualify for my health and benefit, I, I think it's 400 per quarter. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. So if, if I do a 12 hour day times five was a 72 hours a week, oh. <laughs> right. And I work all the time. Um, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Okay. Um, cause you do, you have quite a bit of experience. Cause I first met you when it was on, on earth and, uh, uh, you know, I didn't know you from anybody, you know, and everyone's kind of mingling <laughs> around just like it is on any day of a first on set. And, uh, I was, oh, yeah, you had that big beard. Yeah, I was completely, yeah, that's right. Then I shaved it when we came back. Uh, <laughs> For actual production. Yeah. So I was completely impressed with your knowledge and everything. And when you came back oh, on thanks. set as Key Grip, it totally brought back film school for me and totally re-educated myself because uh, it made on Earth just really go a lot smoother than it probably could have. <laughs> no offense on anything, but I mean, it, that was definitely I'm not going to take compliments, but thank that, you. <laughs> Four of us here, you know, we lived through it. We were the backbone of that uh, production, I would say. During yeah, production, we, we so. needed we needed you guys for sure. <laughs> but yeah, so, but then I remember too, because, you know, it's like, I, I love film. And, and you talked about how like, you know, you got into, well, actually you didn't get into grip because this is what I was going to ask you. It's like, how did you know grip was your, your uh, choice that you wanted to follow? Because I know with a lot of students getting out, they start dabbling, like you said, in this and that. And it seems like you almost get swept into a department that you didn't even really think you were going to choose so yeah that you know i mean so that happens you know it happened with me i was gripping for a long time and i finally got out of that and into the camera which is another thing we could talk about perhaps but as far as another project that you and i worked on so jason what's what's a key grip what's a key grip do what do you love everything. about it <laughs> everything the best phrase i've heard to describe what a key grip is or grips in general is we're the unlicensed engineers on set. Meaning, whether it's gonna be a platform, a camera rig, a dolly track shot, a crane shot, we're the guys, you know, building those things or, you know, me specifically with the best boy grip, like coordinating that stuff. So on top of that, you know, art department might come to us to hang scenics. The, you know, we'll, we'll do all the truss rigging and building to hang the lights for the electricians. And then on the day when we're filming, we also augment natural light if we're shooting outside um, or the, uh, you know, manufactured light from, you know, our electric brothers. We'll, we'll do the shaping and put flags and diffusion. And all. It's, 
it's a lot. It, it's just everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I've been trying to describe to my mom for about 14 years what it is I do, and I still don't think I've accomplished that. I mean, Grip and Electric, you guys are like the unsung heroes, right? I mean, you guys don't get any of the the stardom, but you know, everybody talks about the cinematographers and the directors and the talent and stuff, but really those shots wouldn't be executed that way. They wouldn't look that way. Things wouldn't run. <laughs> like people say, oh, that's a great shot. The cinematographer was amazing, you know, but they, they don't, people in general don't think, well, somebody lit that. Wow, somebody the Keith Griffin Gaffer did a great job on that movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> nice job with that menace uh, arm. <laughs> yeah, it, it is kind of crazy to think about sometimes because so when I get hired on a film or TV project, the first thing I get is a script and I sit at home and I go through the script and I go through every scene and I just write whatever technical things uh, pop out to me, you know, like with with John's script on Earth. It's, you know, as I'm reading it, oh, OK, there's car shots. Are they sitting in the car? Is the car moving? You know, I think in, in the film, if I remember correctly. They uh, they pulled out into the road and stopped and had that conversation. So so that that was easy. But you know, as I'm going through the script, oh, uh, uh, George is driving in this scene. Okay, so are we going to do camera mounts on the outside of the car? Are we going to do a process trailer where the car is towed? I just have to go through and break down the script with all those questions that I have. Oh, there's there's uh, there's a scene down at the lake. Are they in the water? Are they in a boat? Um, are they just on the edge of the water? Is the camera going to be in the water? Like, you know, and then I'll go in with the director and the cinematographer and the gaffer and basically tell them how we're going to achieve these things technically. Um, how you're going to make their wishes come true. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, hey, so, hey, Jay, we want to do this tracking shot and then the camera's going to go 30 feet in the air and then come back down and follow them over the shoulder 40 yards that way. You know, <laughs> like whatever crazy shot they have in mind, I'm the one that has to figure out how we're going to do that and do what it safe some, yeah what were some of your most uh challenging or favorite setups that you've worked on like i know you have you've worked on uh series you've worked on films you've worked on you know a diverse you definitely have a diverse filmography so i'm curious like yeah. what have been kind asked, of your most challenging asked me earlier how many projects and i was like uh i don't even know how to answer it at this point just tv independent films uh, but also like music videos and commercials and I mean, hundreds. <laughs> um, what rigs are uh, you most proud of? I guess like, give, brag, brag a little bit about uh, some of the shots. Um, but actually in throughout some, what are some of the terms they use for, for some of the things like the fly swatter and the, got, they always got catchy. Um, they got little catchy names for everything. <laughs> probably one of the coolest uh, shots or sequences that we did was a movie in twenty. 13 no 2012 man i don't know What's um the movie the called? called the uh truth of the truth about emmanuel but in the script the movie ends with a girl having a dream that her bedroom fills with water and then she swims out her bedroom window so we had to figure out how to do that <laughs> i'm also like i said it's doing a little bit of everything i'm scuba certified so i've done a lot of underwater shots and underwater rigging and uh underwater camera work essentially for the shot what we did is we had a i think it was about eight it was an 18 foot by 18 foot set uh, as perimeter um and we crane we used a construction crane and we craned it into an old oil drum that was full of water and you know we had the safety divers and all that as well but we had you know it was uh we shot alexa 
So we had like the underwater housings for the Alexas. We had multiple cameras, you know, mounted and rigged to this set. And the, uh, so the crane took it up, submerged it into the tank slowly. And we shot, you know, the increments and everything that was storyboarded out, you know, just as, as the crane would slowly submerge the set. Um, we worked with the art department. The floor looked like hardwood floors, but the bottom was actually plywood that just had a bunch of rat holes drilled out of it. And so the water could seep in. You couldn't tell in the corners, but the, uh, the where the walls and the floor met on camera, it looked fine, but there was actually like a five inch, five inch gap. But you know, you're not going to see that on camera. But yeah, the set uh, slowly submerged into this giant tank of water, and then uh, the scuba. You know, there were safety divers and stuff there for talent, and they had a uh, they had the hookah lines, you know, for oxygen hidden throughout the bedroom. So as the actress was underwater, then and you know she went through training for for days leading up to this, and this was like a week long build just for this sequence. But yeah, fine. I eventually, you know, ultimately the set was completely submerged and, uh, you know, she was down there with her hookah lines of oxygen and swam out the bedroom window. I think in the film, if you watch it, there's fish swimming by her. And that was so, one of the crazier ones. Yeah. Well, I can sit here and talk this nerdy stuff with you all day long. You know, <laughs> I think it's fascinating, but COVID let's talk COVID real quick. How's it been affecting you? And when do you see the industry coming back and be honest here? Don't, pussy foot around with me because i don't think it's coming back anytime too so I how mean, everybody's like yeah let's go let's go how how's it affecting me well i've been on a really long vacation no i uh it was uh it was an interesting experience um i was getting ready to i just signed on and i was going through the script with the uh cinematographer for a for a Lionsgate movie um and uh, in addition to that i was also getting ready to shoot a pilot for abc and they pushed our start date a couple of days. And then ultimately, I think it was Friday the 13th, actually. It was. Yeah. March 13th. Oh, uh, we lose you a lot. Oh, no. Maybe he's. Uh, uh, oh, oh, there okay. he lost it for oh, a second. You Friday froze. the 13th. Yeah, Friday the 13th. Oh, I saw. <laughs> um, yeah, that Friday I was sitting at home. I just worked on a commercial a couple of days before that. And then uh, that Friday I was getting ready to do the pilot at ABC starting Monday, which was going to be two weeks. And then uh, the following week I was going to start prep on the Lionsgate movie for, I think that was like a two week prep. And then uh, we were, you know, filming was going to go was about two months of filming for that one. Um, but uh, yeah, that Friday afternoon sitting at home, I was just kind of, waiting waiting for the phone to ring and things just okay we can't we're, we're pushing everything was pushing two weeks hey we're just gonna we're gonna postpone the shoot for two weeks my guys are call, you know i gotta call all the guys i've hired and hey guys the show's pushing well how long they're saying two weeks i think it's gonna be a couple months um uh, I mean, I don't know. You really said what, you you had said that though. Uh, was it ABC that was doing the series? They uh, did. Uh, I guess I would say graciously did pay you two weeks. Uh, uh, yeah, um, the ABC pilot paid uh, the department heads a little bit of a like a cancellation fee. I think it was also them just being nice because they didn't do it until a couple weeks after. I, then, I was just like, oh, that was a wash. I, you know, the job went away. And then um, how fast did you get out of LA? Me? Yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> uh, Friday the was it Friday the 13th? I was on a plane on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Back to sweet ear, all right, Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. 
well, you know, I wanted to come up here to the lake and right. <laughs> if, if I'm not going to be working, I'd, you know, I'd like to enjoy the time off. Right. Um, so other states are not also, I just don't want to be trapped in a major city for all right. Yeah, no, craziness. I would stay home with your family you know. and much better off. So some states yeah. are announcing that they're going to be opening up. Uh, what have you heard? Anything? Just nothing or? Not really. Um, I, you know, I got to be honest. I kind of just got sick of speculating. Right. It is. Like it's all some, pure at, speculation. At, at some point, my phone's going to ring and I'm going to get some job offers and then I'll go back to work. You know, I'm, if I have to wear gloves or a mask or whatever, okay, fine. I was going to say, have, <laughs> I mean, you got a I, shield ready? You got, you got the I, shield uh, I purchased? Know the, California's governor was supposed to do a press oh, that's release, right. you mentioned or a press earlier. conference today with what they were projecting guidelines to be. But I, you know, I went out kayaking. I didn't, I didn't want better idea. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't try and catch up on that information. Also, this is going to come out a week later. So we'll probably, yeah, there'll be uh, all this new info when this, when this you'll be uh, airs. next week in a hazmat suit. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'll be very interested to see where things go. Um, just because our type of job and work, it, you can't stay six feet away from people. Um, you know, you have an entire camera crew huddled around the machine and, you know, there's lighting tweaks. And once you have talent there, you know, like you, you do your best that you can with stand-ins to light and stuff, but everyone's skin tones are different. And there's always those final tweaks. Um, you know, once the, the main talent gets in front of the camera, um, you know, just, I, I think I saw one guideline. I don't know if it was the Atlanta one or maybe it was New Zealand. One of those other places that started filming. New, New so Zealand, actually, New, yep. New Zealand, uh, James Cameron's already started to film, uh, for avatars 10, <laughs> one through 10. Well, one, but, uh, of, one of the guidelines, it was saying like, you know, there's going to be one grip, one, one electrician and like a swing, which, you know, we, know we, weren't, we, were, we were, we were, we weren't even that minimal on John's movie. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that does not sound safe. Right. That sounds like, no, it's not well, time consuming. I just don't know how it's it, possible. It's, it's not, it's not, that's what I'm saying. Whatever happens is going to happen, but, at a certain point, there's just no way to do our jobs with yeah. different guidelines, in my opinion. I mean, how if I'm the key grip, how am I supposed to be pushing the dolly and doing all those cranes by myself? Um, that that one guideline came. That one of those guidelines came out, and uh, the cinematographer for the uh, Lionsgate movie called me because you know we're still we're still talking about the script and specialty shots that he wants to do, you know, and hopes that when things pick back up, this movie will come back. But he called me and he's like, how, how are we going to make this movie with three guys? <laughs> and I'm like, we can make the movie. It's just not going to be any good. Like there's not going to be any lighting. Like I'm not going to be able to do You know what I mean? Like right. we, you might as well shoot it with your cell phone. Cause that's the quality that it's going to be, you know? Um, Cause you, if there's no, you know, if there's no labor or people, it's just not possible. I mean, Mike, you know this. It, it's it's not. Yeah, I, I mean, we're going through the same. We're dealing with the same thing right now. It's just like in New York. Obviously, New York being what it is, it's just like mm -hmm. these these are. I know a few guys who are working, but it, they're doing ESPN things and ABC things, and it's pretty much it's one sound guy and it's one camera guy and a producer. 
since we're all here together, we need to either make another like uh, beast in me or schism or something where we just have like one sound guy, <laughs> one person on the lights. You know, we're gonna we're gonna have to regress back to like our roots, and we're just gonna have to shoot like really small stuff. Otherwise, we're gonna go insane <laughs> if it's another like six months of this. I don't know. Yeah. Um, You're like you just dropped the beast in me on me. I know I haven't heard that in a long. I, I I forgot about that one. That was a short film I made right when I got out of film school. You shot on uh, film. Yeah, we shot on sixteen millimeter. Oh yeah, all right. That's what I'm saying. Um, we got plenty of time. I was, time to I, was on I was living in my apartment in Edinburgh, living off of pretzels, so I could save up and buy this film stock. <laughs> And one of the happy accidents was I couldn't afford to get the film developed. So it sat in my fridge for like two or three months. <laughs> what, do you and remember? it got a bunch of condensation on it. And so when uh, I finally sent it to the lab in New York City and like saved up the money, it came back. Like I got, all, I got the hard drive back. And he was like, yeah, there was like water damage. And it was, it was a short black and white film that I made that, that was also a horror um, and I got it back and there were all these blips and watermarks and lines and streets. And the guy was like apologetic. And I was like, no, this is awesome. It looks great. Right? <laughs> yeah, it looks super cool. Uh, yeah. yeah, that same thing happened to me too when I was first shouting film. It just, it, and when we went to edit it, it was just like, oh my God. And then we're like, wow, it doesn't look too bad. <laughs> well, Jason, thanks yeah. so much for... Um, you know, joining us. I know we've wanted to have you on on here forever. And yeah, we have. It's one one bonus, I guess, of of COVID that you're not working your <laughs> ass off constantly. Uh, so thanks, man. I mean, yeah, thanks for having me. So Jesse picked this week's film. It is called Climax. It's from French filmmaker Gaspar Noé. The story is that we have a group of dancers, very talented, very different methods of dance. They are rehearsing, and then they have a little party after rehearsal, and somebody puts some acid in the punch, and the things get crazy. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know what, what your guys' experience is with um, acid. No, no. Oh, oh. With, with this filmmaker. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but I, I've seen uh, this film three times now. I like oh it my God. Quite, quite a bit. How do you make it through three times? <laughs> Seriously, man. I can keep going. Like, um, I love that Jesse picked this film because in our film at the Erie Art Museum days, I would have shown Climax for sure. And I considered it for film grain dinner in a movie, but it's just not the right kind of film. I feel like I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the filmmaker, and we can get in into that a little bit. But maybe uh, we'll get your initial thoughts from you guys, and we'll go from there. What did you guys think of the film, and who wants to go first? Go ahead, Erica. <laughs> so, She's got words. I actually really, really liked it. Um, at the same time, I was disturbed by some of the things that happened in the the last half of the movie. Things that I had read before about Gaspar Noé's films in particular, that they're very provocative, but that he uses color very intentionally. And I found that to be true absolutely with this movie. It's like 
quite vibrant that you go from a green room to a red room to a blue room and what those colors make you feel. Definitely a moment of potential serenity going into a blue room, but nothing really is serene at all in this movie. Um, I was certainly, there were a couple things I was really disturbed by, but only one part where I had to like cover my eyes. <laughs> John, you'd be happy to know I did not fall asleep during this movie. And I waited until it was it. over and then I took a nap. <laughs> <laughs> How could you nap um, after this movie? <laughs> But I have so much respect for I have so much respect for the director watching this. I mean, there was a five-page script I learned. Most of the movie was improvised, other than the choreographed um, dance scene to start. But these actors who are dancers, incredible Most, yeah. dancers, they're not actors. The um, I guess you would say like kind of the lead actress the lead Sophia. dancer that you see the most of in the movie. She is an actress um, and dancer, but everybody else like was there making up their dialogue and talking like they would maybe backstage or at their rehearsals, you know, in their real lives. Um, improvised dialogue was interesting. It was all about sex between all the men. Like pretty much that was the only thing they were talking about in a pretty graphic terms um which makes me wonder like what's on your mind guys if pretty much the director says okay just go talk uh and improvise you know what you would normally talk about and all the guys are just like i would totally bang her you know like that kind of stuff <laughs> really really very graphic um detail it was fascinating really um and i think when the the women are communicating or the men and women are communicating it's it's a little different uh for sure but i was really impressed about the script the dancing just really impressed me i said to mike while we were watching that second dance uh sequence where it's shot from above and you see the dancers basically freestyling in their dance style the contortionists were kind of interesting but i learned a new term which was crumping they were crumping Oh, yeah. That is a dance style that I learned about today. Um, nice. That was the transition from like, I don't know, sanity to insanity. <laughs> That's when all the drugs kicked in. So they came out of that dance sequence and, you know, things were starting to go, go haywire. But um, overall, really liked it. I agree with you, John. It's not really for like our film grain audience. I think that it, it I would be so happy if I knew some of our film grain audience watched this and appreciated it, I, I so I hope that you know the people who are listening to this podcast gave it a shot because I, I really want to hear if anybody watched it and what they think of it. Stu and Mike, initial thoughts, takeaways. <laughs> we can't have two Berlins go back to back, so uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I started watching it again. Open mind here. I thought the first fifteen minutes were just fabulous. I mean, that opening dance sequence was just like you know, it was great. It was super, and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I wonder what the plot's going to take us. <laughs> and then it got bad really quick. I mean, I just the the, the takes were just way too freaking long. There was way too much improvisation when it finally got to the point where they were, you know, cutting between the conversation and getting somewhere with dialogue or story. Eric is right. It was all about sex, um, which was humorous at one point. But then it just it just it was this every time you shifted to a new group, 
it was the same kind of like bitching and moaning about their lives. And it just kept going on and on and on and everything. And then the drugs kicked in, you know, now, why what do you think about trips? once, once oh. the drugs kicked in? What did you think about the film from then? Did your opinion change once you got to some of that downward spiral stuff or no? Not really, because I mean, not all acid trips have to be these nightmares. Right. And, and it was really confusing why it was all going crazy anyways, you know. Like, right. what, why is everyone having such a bad trip? Because they're tripping. I mean, they're dancers. They live in a world of drugs and alcohol. Now, the key tip off was when they're doing their interviews and the one girl's like, yeah, there's lots of drugs in Berlin, you know? And it's like, okay, all right, here's our, vic- our, our, our culprits. Culprit, yeah. Uh, uh, but I just, like, little Tito, man, he didn't have to die. Come on, <laughs> you know? Oh, that and, was really hard. Yeah, that was, right? that was you know? really hard. And, like... It's just, I was trying to stay open-minded and I'm watching the whole thing. And it was just, it was, it was a movie about being awkward and uncomfortable. And I'm okay with that. Okay. Because I love movies like Natural Born Killers by Oliver Stone. And I love Requiem for a Dream. Okay. Totally uncomfortable movies about drugs that just, just disgusting endings. You know what I mean? And I went to go do a little more work on Gaspar, Gaspar. And found out he's a 58-year-old filmmaker. And I'm thinking to myself, some 20-something NYU student made this film. I'm like, give me a break, dude. You are obsessed in a world of yourself, nihilist, (laughs) drug-induced, whatever. You're 58 years old. You've made six or eight films now. And this is what you're still making? This is garbage for a 58-year-old filmmaker. If if you ask me, this is my opinion. I mean, if I was 58 years old and, and like, this is not what I would want to be making. This is something somebody makes coming out of film school, you know, and the lighting was nice and everything. But again, it was very just, I don't, I don't know. I wasn't impressed at all, (laughs) at all. Okay. So one of the things I read about the filmmaker was that he doesn't care about critics. He just makes movies that movies that he likes. He's like, I do this for my own pleasure. That's great. Him and Lars Tears can get together. No, is this part Lars of the whole dogma Trier, thing? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this part of like his? Was this a dogma style thing? You know no, what I mean? No, no, this is not dogma style for sure. Okay, I just wondered. Dogma was it, Danish, right? Yeah, still. I mean, it's it's a it's a. It was a movement. Movement, right? Movement. Yeah. Um, All right. Before we get into, uh, I don't know, talking about just Gaspar, I want to hear what Mike uh, Mike's overall thoughts were. Okay, so I've seen a lot of his films at this point. I think I've almost seen all of them from Irreversible, uh, Enter the Void, which I think is actually my personal favorite of his. I, I have, I've seen parts of that. I like yeah, it. Even after, even after Climax and um, uh, what was the other one? And Love. Um, I think you got to look at him and you have to look at some level. Okay, sorry, going film dork again. But like from the French uh, cinema sort of standpoint, where cinema to the French, it, to, it, it has a tradition of, feeling and feeling the films and feeling the message and stuff like that. And I think the takeaway on some level and having read a little bit, but at this point is what he's trying to address. And he, he there, I didn't love this one as much as I was thinking I was going to, to be honest. So maybe I might be thumbs down, but I do appreciate the message. There's an urban legend that this actually happened uh, to a dance troupe. And uh, he is trying to, he expl- he's exploring the idea and the motifs of, people getting in the way of themselves of being of reaching their full potential 
And there's something to that, actually. Yes. It, you know, it's really failure is kind of easy. Success is hard, even when you are insanely talented, as they all are. And I think on some level, instead of it, it's it would be almost the counter to what we would do from an American sentiment uh, in filmmaking. We would then focus on uh, the hardship in a more sort of narrative fashion. He's focusing it on the ideals of how you would feel and that how you would stunt that potential growth as an artist. Um, I didn't love the film, but I do kind of get where he's going with it. And I appreciate that. We still say a thumbs down to be honest, uh, just because and Stu actually hits on some. Of it. It's like at a certain point, some of the some of the beats are just too long. And, sure. just like, it, it, and I think it could have actually been a shorter film, and I probably would have been more on board with it. Uh, but it's it's a really interesting thing that he's saying. He's like sort of how we are our own worst enemy, particularly in the creative arts, and uh, how it's amazing how people can sabotage themselves. Well, Mike, I did like his okay. use of the credits, though. I did. I, honestly, I thought that was, that was cool. cool. That was we cool. just started throwing the freaking band names out there and everything and the actors. I was like, hey, I'll, I'll deal with that. That's cool. Well, yeah, capitalizing on, uh, I guess, taking what Mike just said out a level, um, you know, it's proudly stated as a French film, like right up front in the in the big it, title. Oh, you're right about that. Yeah. Um, and at the midway point um, when Stu's talking about when the credits come in. So halfway through the film, yeah, um, what does it say? You know, we have the credits and it says, this is for France. Let's slaughter those Yanks, slaughter them. This is war. And I would say that this is, if we take what Mike's saying about the artist, I would say taking it out to the art form, and like America and the whole, this is how I took the film. You know, he's making as unconventional of films as he can. He's trying to like destroy convention. Yeah. Um, just like these artists are kind of destroying themselves for the sake of their art. Um, so I wonder when, when I saw it the second time, the first time I was kind of like you guys, and I was like, oh, is this too long? Like, I, I like it, but it's too long. But when I watched it um, the second time, I really felt like, especially with all the kind of God's eye view camera, which he loves to do, but I, I thought in this film in particular, it felt like he was, they were playing for the audience. They were dancing and giving their all for us. But I felt like they were kind of performing for like the Hollywood system and kind of war against the bland film gods, which are kind of like Hollywood. I can see that. Um, I can see all of that. Yeah. Well, even I mean, the first absolutely. line in the movie that Sophia, um, what's her name? Sophia Buffet or something okay. like that. Right. Um, okay. The first line she says is she's like, this, our God is with us, something like that, when they're right. done like performing, is like yeah, the first yeah. line in the movie. So, um, and ju I'll just finish my you know, comment on what you guys are saying about like the filmmaker. Um, yeah, I, I think he sees himself like a Jean-Luc Godard, like a Lars von Trier, a Mikkel Haneke. Um, you know, he wants to be like the Asian, a Asian provocateur or whatever. Um, 
you know, he wants to bring his audience in with him on these uh, self-indulgent, pretentious uh, <laughs> yes. you know, yes. uh, messages. Um, but I think know, real, John, I do think there's a real message, like, yeah. and something really worth, like, of talking about. And I definitely, yeah, there's no getting past the fact that there is some anti- American sentiment on some level and I you know, and like you said it's performing for the camera but then as like the last 15 minutes is all upside down sort of like he's showing you the deep dirty underbelly of what it's really all about yeah yeah and he you know he annoys and frustrates me just like these other filmmakers I mean I when Jean-Luc Godard and Lars von Trier and uh Haneke they're like at their best like I am so you know we need filmmakers like Noe and these other filmmakers we do because you know they challenge the form they make us feel uncomfortable yeah they're self-indulgent and you know pretentious but um we need that you know we need that variety and we need people even if it, it's some of them are swings and misses, um, you know, like kind of like you and Stu are saying, uh, they don't quite work. I think that, you know, we need somebody that's gonna, um, you know, show scenes in reverse and show the opening credits halfway through and show the last scene first and, you know, just mix stuff up and take risks. And so I, I appreciate what he's doing from that point of view, but yeah, it's, it's very self-indulgent and cocky and, you know, he's used to having people boo and walk out of his films at Cannes. And this is the first film that no one walked out of. And so he felt like um, very disappointed by that. He got um, a standing ovation, actually. Yeah, so it's kind of like, um, you know, it, the, the sonata, I wrote this down too, that he's, just imagine being a filmmaker that all of the films you've made have played the Cannes Film Festival, right? Imagine what that right. has to do to your ego. He, I think this is the film that he turned in like after Cannes had already announced their picks. But since he's like in the in club, he turns it in late and they're going to program it. And the only synopsis that he gave them was birth and death are extraordinary experiences. Life is a fleeting pleasure. That's all that he gave that them like, that the film is about. <laughs> you know, like, it's it's. I balls. think he just likes to F with people. <laughs> yeah. I, I do, but still, I think that's part of it. I think he is fucking with them, but like to what John's saying, he is pushing a very necessary envelope. Because, I mean, so many, I mean... We all want to. We all want the adoration. We all want, you know, sort of the approval and stuff like that. But it, ta it does take. It does take real fucking cojones to put out there and do something totally, you know, different. Totally different. He operated I... the camera himself, Erica. What did you think about the cast? This feels like it's the most diverse cast I think I've ever okay. seen in a movie. <laughs> it is. I cool. really appreciated the the diversity of the cast and. Um, I, but I, I, and I loved the, what seemed when they were dancing, like a real cohesion. And I think that's where the fact that they're not really actors, like they are real dancers. And I think their natural abilities and their tendencies came through that dancers move. Like that's what they 
want to do. That's what their default is. So even when they're not performing, they're moving. They, they're like, let's stop our dance rehearsal and let's dance. And then they get into a whole circle and, you know, all of the dancers do their, their kind of solos in the middle and then, and they're all around each other. I mean, it's all about movement and this group is very diverse and is very attractive and is very talented. Um, but I'm sure that the, the dancers and the, and the scene of people who are that incredibly talented are going to be very diverse. You know, I think the only French person, well, the the German gal, I think she was the only one that wasn't French, right? The girl who actually spiked the sangria <laughs> <laughs> and does LSD as therapy, um, yeah. which actually is a thing. And I know somebody who does that for people. Don't invite um, them to a party. Don't invite them to the party. But one of the co- one of the things I What's wanted to number? comment on was about you know kind of giving the fu to the Yanks to American film, and a number of the the incidents in the movie are quite um, literally reversals, I think, of how Americans treat different topics in film. So, for example. Um, Usually, you know, the the mother lo- intentionally locks her child in a closet to keep him safe, and then ends up losing the key on drugs, and he perishes locked in a closet because he becomes he gets electric. First of all, he also has LSD in his system, and then gets electrocuted because he touches the electrical panel. Things that Americans don't do in film, they really don't. And if they do that, that is like this massive event that they build a whole film around. Um, and in this case, it's just, yep, we're going to take care of little Tito, and he's going <laughs> to, you know, and it's all the mother's fault. And then the woman who uh, at the beginning is talking, and, you know, her castmate or dance mate is like, have you ever had an abortion? She's like, well, I like the right to choose. Flash forward into LSD time and the girl is saying, I am pregnant. That's why I didn't drink. And, you know, I'm sick. And instead of anyone feeling like, like, oh my gosh, you're, that's pretty, you know, they think she's the one that spiked the the sangria because she didn't drink it because she's pregnant. And what they do is beat her and get her to the point where she is hurting herself because they are telling her how awful she is, how you should abort your child. So she literally starts hurting herself in order to do that. Something you will never see in an American movie. Again, an American movie, the girl has this tragic experience of needing to have an abortion and then her life redeems from that. You know, that's how we handle those kinds of events because life is so sacred. Meanwhile, in France, She's beating herself in the stomach and ends up slicing herself open. It was so disturbing. Yeah. But those two things in particular made me think, yes, we're going to cover these topics the exact opposite of how Americans would do it. Because Americans really hold these things, this motherhood, this baby and pregnancy, that whole thing in a very different way. Right. Yeah, it's I think and I think you're right, Erica, but I think what he's playing off of is that's the pretension of Americans. We say we yeah, say but that's one, what he's saying. We, right. you, we, America. Say one, we say one thing, but we act another way. Well, that's true. And I think yeah. he's actually he's like, you guys talk about all of this shit. But it's like when it when push comes to shove, you're just as ugly as the rest of the world. Yeah. 
And it could be a commentary even on the, uh, you know, the vapidness of the conversations, Stu, that, yes, go on way too long, you know. <laughs> I mean, I hear all the art house school, you know, film school, you know, tip of the hats and all that stuff. And it's still got to work as a movie. Right, exactly. Still got to work as a movie, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I get it. I mean, to me, like I've rated this film like a, this is like a seven out of ten for me. Like I think it it is great on so many levels. I think it fails on a bunch of levels too. And usually, I find movies that are they're like tough to review movies by these filmmakers because yeah, it's not that I love them, but I do feel that they are. And it's kind of pretentious just to say it, but I do feel like they are important and that I think people should watch them because you're missing a lot of the, and I say this a lot at all our film series and programs, like you're missing a lot of the conversation. You're missing a lot of the art form if you don't see films that challenge you and challenge your expectations. It's a lot more interesting to have a conversation about a com- like a controversial film like Climax than it is to if all four of us sat down and then be like, well, geez, I just, we all loved E.T. E.T. was great. There we go. I cried. I cried. But like, there's nothing. That's a different discussion, though. But that's what I'm saying. It's still valid, just different. It's it's great. Like, that's sometimes what real, because it's going to push you in different ways. I'm kind of wish, I didn't love the movie, but. I do recognize that it's like, fuck, it's kind of fun to debate about it and like sort of dissect it a little bit more because there's just more to actually talk about. Talk about. Yeah. It's more interesting to talk about. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. In a way it is his most, you guys have seen his other movies. It does feel like it's his most accessible movie. Like, I don't know if I would tell somebody to like, I don't think I mean, I've ever recommended in, uh, Enter the Void, which I yeah, like. Yeah, or Irreversible, like, or, you know. Which, like, I, yeah, which is tough. Or Love, which Love really, you know, it's really just a story about, yeah, threesomes can turn out ruining relationships, you know. But, yeah, yeah. but it's done in a Gasper, no way <laughs> way. Like, you know? Really? <laughs> you know, it, not to get, Love is like, man, that, that was one that's just like, is this supposed to be edgy? Yeah, in a way, I feel like maybe that's his most accessible movie which is strange it probably (laughs) is it's just like it's just he's a psychiatrist is what he needs then he'll get his perfect script he's he's working it out in his art yes he is well jesse i would say uh you know thank you for this recommendation it made me happy um to see we got to talk about it since i knew i wasn't gonna get to show it so Stu, what uh what's our recommendation for next week uh, I would like everyone to watch Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler on Netflix. Uh, I probably wouldn't have recommended this because I know we were supposed to have this in the Film Grain series, but I feel that with it being shown on Netflix, everyone's going to watch it and not want to come to Film Grain for that one. So I know I debated this with you guys, and I appreciate you going my way on this. But yes, Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler for next week. Can we also recommend Good Times if they're up for it? Yeah, dude, that was great. That was I actually watched that first twice. I've watched that one twice. I loved it. Actually, I think three of their films are on Netflix. I can't remember their uh, features name before. Um, Even that's an awkward film that kind of like goes off with great color and all this stuff and lots of handheld. But that's a film as far as, you know, I don't know, at least with Climax. Anyways, <laughs> I digress. Everybody's got their own opinion. It's good. Exactly. That's what's so great about film. Thanks, Stu. And I guess then we will... Probably Eric could take that out of our feature program, Uncut Gems, right? 
Yes, we should. I'm okay. I'm sure there will be other things we can put in there. Sure. Um, like now I, we're kind of thinking about a program that we don't really know when it's going to come back. So it might be easy to trim that program a little bit. Well, that's been our episode. Take a chance and check out Climax on Amazon Prime and let us know what you think, please. Next week, our guest will be folklorist and teaching artist Kelly Armour. Make sure you follow us on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain.